Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. I'm very excited to be talking about strength training and how mindfulness can help because I just didn't know that the two would like could be blended together. So my guest today is Scotty and he's going to tell us more about it. I'm so excited. Thank you. I am super excited as well. Thanks for the invite to join you. Yeah. So before we even kind of dive into like that topic, I want to sort of start off with like, tell us about you to build up some context and then we'll kind of slowly try to bridge the gap of strength training and mindfulness. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, it's my favorite topic. So um, should be, should be awesome. What not, not talking about me. I meant st- yeah. <laughs> mindfulness and strength. Training. My favorite talk topic is tell me about yourself. No. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll start there. Um, so I, I am uh, Scotty butcher and I am a uh, university professor at the university of Saskatchewan in the uh, uh, school of rehabilitation science in the physical therapy department. So I am a physiotherapist by background. Um, I have a background in kinesiology. I have a master's in kinesiology and a PhD in uh, a combination of a bunch of different things that um, that experimental medicine, which involve primarily pulmonary physiology and um, exercise science, which was mostly strength and conditioning and exercise physiology. And uh, so I've been, I've been teaching here at the U of S for about 13 years and yeah. And that's, that's my my brief little resume story. Yeah, that's um, like, what a repertoire of like information and knowledge, knowing, you know, what it takes to, you know, make it all the way to your, you know, PhD and the amount of research you must have, uh, must have done. Uh, so I'm kind of interested to sort of start off with like figuring out like what got you so interested in strength training and, you know, were there any specific populations that you were like interested in seeing how strength training makes an impact? Yeah, no, that's great. Um, it, it, it's nice that you mentioned, you know, like to, all the work to do up to the PhD, because actually it's, um, while I've been, you know, I've been interested in strength training basically my whole life, right from my high school, um, you know, gym, gym club, training club, you know, right through, uh, um, I trained for uh, rugby was my sort of my main sport. And of course, there was lots of strength training involved in that. So it's always really been a part of my life, um, except for the that short period when I first became a dad. And, you know, I sort of embrace the dad bod lifestyle. And, you know, as, as a lot of dads do, it sort of turns into, uh, well, I just trying to make it through the day, let alone, you know, do a ton of training. So, so my consistency wasn't as good, but anyway, the point is, is that, uh, this is something that's interested me for a while, but I actually really didn't get into what I would consider strength training until after my PhD, to be honest. Um, it, uh, I was doing my early training was a lot of body building style type training. So lots of, uh, lots of fatigue, lots of reps, isolated body parts and things like that. And 
it was while I was working as a professor that um, one of my students introduced me to uh, my current um, uh, collaborator at a CrossFit gym um, and said, you guys, you know, based on the way that you guys are talking, you know, you'd be really interested in, in talking with this guy. And so, so that sort of started my, my journey down, uh, down what it is to do strength training. Um, I know I haven't talked research yet, but I, to me, it's one of the crucial aspects of doing this type of research, especially clinical research, is that uh, you, you kind of have to live it to a certain extent to really kind of understand it. So um, started off in CrossFit, decided that CrossFit was cool, but I liked powerlifting better. So I transitioned into powerlifting and, and uh, sort of been on and off with my powerlifting training ever since. But one of the, one of the things that kind of got me into the research side of things, of course, was, you know, seeing all of the benefits that I was getting personally coming from, you know, Mr. Dad Bod, who is an ex-rugby player with tons of injuries and things that are starting to uh, creep up in terms of, uh, you know, joint pain and things like that. And then and seeing how much uh, strength training really had an impact on on how I was feeling and how I was able to do things. I, I started with uh, this obviously ha isn't my first research, but I, I sort of started on the real strength training side of things with uh, a study on older adults with uh, doing strength training. And it was actually because of my mom, to be honest. Um, she ha had a stint in uh, in the ICU about, I guess it's about 10 years ago now, uh, a stint in the ICU where she was basically uh, septic and um, just knocked out for about three weeks trying to figure out exactly what was going on and get her, um, you know, back to some sort of a normal shape. Um, and then, uh, um, so she was extremely deconditioned and, and uh, came home, did sort of home-based physio, but uh, nothing that I was involved with, just that uh, um, I was sort of seeing how she was doing. But I convinced her to get into this, this trial, this strength training trial. And, and um, you know, she's, she's a picture of health now. She wouldn't have been without, mm. without this high quality training to be, to be blunt. So, um, you know, my PhD, it, it involved training and of course, strength and conditioning. And, and I, I started applying it in with my training in pulmonary physiology and I'd spent some time doing pulmonary rehab. So I kind of got into it with that, but then really transitioned into strength training through, uh, through this first study that my mom was involved with. And, and, uh, then it's been going pretty strong ever since in, in lots of different aspects. Yeah. So I want to ask, cause you, you mentioned like your first was working with older adults. And I think, you know, one of the things that I hear clients ask me all the time, which I'm sure is not going to be something new to you, um, is like, am I too old to improve my muscles? Right? Like I'm always getting the, like, oh, I'm a lost cause or, you know, can I really make any improvements in my, in my strength? So I would love if you could speak to like what your research has shown. And obviously, you know, your mom's a good bill of health, but I mean, three weeks in a hospital bed, I mean, deconditioning happens so fast. And I wonder like, if you could speak to also, you know, is just like the regular kind of working with a TheraBand at home enough or does it need to be intensive to build back from like a three-week hospital stay to kind of back to function? Sorry, that was like 
many questions in one. That's okay. I, I think I caught them all. <laughs> Let's open it. You can stop me if I if I forget. But um, so so looking at older adults and and the older yeah. adults that say I'm a lost cause. It's it's never ever 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 too late. You you can make improvements no matter what position situation you're in and uh you know i've seen my my mom is a primary example and it's a story that i always love to tell because she you know as you as you adequately said you know three weeks in the icu i mean it's not like three weeks of being you know lazing around on the couch and that i mean that that's bad enough but three weeks in the icu where you're sedated and i mean you just lose so much in terms of your all of your functional abilities and and it's almost like your body shuts down and you know to get to gain that back to gain back a significant amount of neuromuscular control and strength and and cardiovascular capacity and endurance i mean it's, it takes so much most people that come out of the icu if it's been a long stint don't ever recover their their baseline function and and that is a very sad fact of our system is that it is not designed to do that. What I will tell you, and, and you know, not saying that my mom is the only example or an aberration, this is, this is something that's absolutely possible. But she, you know, she's now stronger and has more capacity endurance than she did prior to the, the incident that caused her to go into the ICU. And that's not the norm. And, you know, normally even over time, you'd, you'd expect to see some decreases, but she, she went from um, in the ICU over the course of about a year post ICU, she was doing the TheraBand exercises, as you said, and, you know, she was trying to get around the house, but it was, it was really difficult. Even a flight of stairs was very hard and she wasn't able to do a lot of her own, her own, own uh, um, shopping and and that she just wasn't conditioned enough, wasn't strong enough. Um, and, and this is with sort of a baseline program where you're kind of giving some basic things with a TheraBand and doing some isolation type exercises. And um, I, I've seen this in many individuals that it, that it really isn't enough. And I'm glad you asked the question because it's, it, it isn't, it, it's not enough to just kind of do what you normally do, trying to work back up to what you were doing and then maybe add on a couple little exercises here and there. You, you do need to look at, well, what are the longer term benefits that you can get with something that involves what, what how I define strength training is, is progressive loading of movement patterns. So it, it's not just, you know, I'm going to do some TheraBand bicep curls. You know, I'm going to learn how to do a sit to stand or a squatting exercise. I'm going to learn how to pick things, heavy things up off the ground, or we could call that a deadlift or, you know, push and pull using the upper body and using sort of these whole body type exercises that you can progress, you know, over time, your the loading can go up and up and up. And, and it's, it's that aspect that you, that you don't have with sort of the basic level therapeutic exercise with TheraBands. And, and that is that uh, you, you, people typically plateau very, very, very quickly and the gains that you would look to make sort of stop. And so if you're that person who's coming out of the ICU or you've never exercised in your life, um, you're saying that, oh, I'm too, everything's too bad, everything hurts. And I'm not at the stage where I could really 
really do anything. That that's so not true. You you might start with some basic things like mm-hmm. the therapeutic exercises with Theraband. Sure, that's an awesome place to start. You know, just doing some basic things around the house and have someone tell you what to do. But it, it, the challenge of actually being able to add more more load and 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 do that over time will, will take someone from that functional decline that we expect to see with older adults as people get older and turn that around so that you know we get thing we get people saying through our research and and, and actually the I was part of starting up the masters club at the uh, the local gym that that I collaborate with and you know what we see through that program and through the research is people saying time and time again I never thought I'd be able to do this again I I never thought that I'd be able to bend down and get the uh, get the pots out of the bottom shelf lift them up stand up on my own without having to prop myself up and you know it just it's a huge testament to 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 you either use it or lose it and then if you've lost it you can gain it back through motion is lotion that's the other little uh, one yep. that we always say is motion is lotion but then you add some load to that and and it's almost like the sky's the limit but but people don't always see that they don't always think that that's the way to go why any it's, any yeah. theories on that well, yeah, there's there's lots. Um, I mean, the the typically, especially older individuals who haven't ever trained before, they they I think that they tend to see weightlifting as kind of like the well, I'm going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, or I'm gonna I'm gonna look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, or, or and those guys, and they and they they don't think it's for them. They don't think they 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 would either want to, or that there would be a benefit. And it's it's not in the bodybuilders that, you know, the style of training that we do is not bodybuilder training. And even if it was, you know, you have to be pretty genetically gifted and eating you know six seven thousand calories a day, you know, and do that basically all day every day in order to look like that over years and years and years, the, the average person isn't going to come anywhere near that. So, you know, it's, it's, people think that it's not for them. And I, I, I think that's a, that's one of the things that I'd really like to change is that perception of, of what strength training is. It's okay to, to look at a barbell and, and say, okay, I might be a little bit scared of this because I'm not sure, but have someone that can help you and teach you how to do it right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely, you know, because, well, I'm in predominantly in pelvic health. And so, you know, I'll have ladies, you know, in their 70s coming and being like, you know, is, is it a lost cause? I'm like, you know, your pelvic floor is a muscle just like any other muscle, um, you know, but when it reaches a certain point, like, yes, we, we're going to do these basic exercises. We're going to try to build up, like build you up to a functional level where you can kind of withstand gravity. But then we have to kind of go, above and beyond that in order to really help you overcome whatever the challenge is to become asymptomatic or, you know, not leak every time you're not rushed to the bathroom and not make it that kind of thing. But oftentimes, you know, when we become deconditioned, you, we sort of just kind of go back to like status quo, but never really think about surpassing that so that when time acts on our body, like we're at a greater standing point. So even if we're going to lose some muscle as time progresses, we're way ahead so that we don't get to a point where we're so fragile that we can no longer have independence in our later years. 
That's totally right. It's uh, I call it building functional capacity. Some people talk about, you know, your training as as putting into a bank, you know, for savings, and and you're you're building up your muscle capacity bank by training. Because I mean, at some point in time, as much as you can always put on muscle and always put on strength and and build, no matter what you're doing, at some point in time, that's going to decrease. That's just an a natural part of aging. And so what we what we want to do is try and slow that down the best that we can and start at a higher level, as you say, start at a higher capacity so that when we do lose, we're, we're lose muscle and, and uh, um, capacity that we're in, in a much better position to be able to tolerate that. And, and to me, that's sort of how um, strength training relates to building resilience, physical resilience and, and functional capacity. And I'm just also thinking to myself, because I've seen research before that it look has looked at like histological slides of like, you know, the big major leg muscle groups in the aging population. And they had two side by side of like an individual in their 70s who didn't exercise and an individual who did. And histologically, we see a significant decrease in fatty infiltration in the muscle. So you, you may have more bulk, but if it's, you know, if it's all fatty tissue, you're not going to have very good strength, um, to be able to move that muscle group versus somebody who exercises can actually, you know, even if the muscle mass is smaller, the quality of that muscle is so much greater. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's so true. And it's, uh, you know, it's sort of the misnomer of, um, you know, thinking, you know, we're, society wants us to be thin and, you know, and, to, and the best way to do that is to aerobic exercise and not eat. And, and uh, we just we just know the downsides of, of uh, having that approach that uh, not not that you don't have aerobic exercise, because that's also important, but, you know, eating well and, and putting on mass and doing so in such a way that the quality of the muscle is, is mm. great. And, and I really like the, the fatty infiltration research. Um, and, and it just looks at the efficiency of the muscle contraction. And so the more you can train, the better efficiency you have, the less fatty infiltration you have. It also speaks to muscular health. And, uh, you know, this is another thing that a lot of people don't think about is they don't think about the muscle as an endocrine organ, as a hormone producing organ that actually has a very significant impact on your metabolism. And so one of the best remedies for individuals with chronic inflammation is strength training because it allows the, the body to produce anti-inflammatory hormones and get help deal with the stress hormones that are, uh, that are present. Certainly nowadays, more so than uh, more so than ever. Yeah. And not even that, but, you know, just absorbing sugars, like decreased risk of diabetes and all of there's just so many benefits to, to strength training. Now, I do have a question. I don't know if you can answer this or not, because I've seen some research that for some individuals um, with chronic inflammation, and this might be more prone to fibromyalgia, um, that exercise can be inflammatory. Exercise is a stressor. And I, I think that's the important thing to keep in mind is that our body is designed to, in the normal circumstance, designed to take stressors and with the appropriate amount of recovery or rest or changing of those stressors to adapt. And so that is the process of, of training. 
is, is to put a stressor through the body, give it some time to recover, and then you adapt. And, and then so you can tolerate more and more stresses. And so that's, that's really the, the, you know, the pure definition of strength training is, is put a little bit of stress on, give recovery and build. Um, same thing with aerobic training and building the heart and, and the blood vessels and their capacity. Um, certain people um, with certain conditions, uh, fibromyalgia being one of them, there are, uh, there, there are I'm, I'm sort of blanking right now on some of the other ones, but uh, there are some conditions where we do see that the amount of stress that exercise can put through is just a little bit, a little bit too much, or they, they never actually return to a, a baseline, like a chronic stress, right? Chronic inflammation. And, and a lot of people, and this is certainly not my area of research, but I know a lot of people that have talked about how uh, chronic inf inflammation in these type of individuals, or, or even in, in, you know, healthy individuals going through a pandemic, you know, where chronic stress can impair your recovery ability, can impair your ability to, uh, to build, right? So, so in those individuals, if chronic stress is up, and they're putting more stress, but not allowing that recovery, then this can be a bad thing. And it can become pro-inflammatory and not, not exactly what we're looking for. I, I think that's true. Um, you know, a lot of people think of fibromyalgia, but like I said before, I do think that's true uh, to, to varying degrees and probably a lesser degree, but someone who's healthy um, will also have that response where chronic stress impairs your ability to, to make the progress that you want to make and could potentially be pro-inflammatory if it's too much. Um, okay. I have a clarifying question. Yeah. Um, so it's not, so the strength training is the stressor that creates inflammation, right? Because well, it, it, it creates, it, it creates a stress response. So it is becoming um, anti-inflammatory in the process of recovery. Yes. Okay. So that's where we're getting the benefit is it's not in the first, the stressor itself. It's in the process of dealing with the stressor that takes the inflammation into a better immune response. Right. And okay. from a physiological perspective, that's, that's what we understand. But I, I just want to uh, clarify just a little bit on that because there is an acute benefit to exercise and movement and not just strength training, but any sort of movement. We know that, that the ability to move and the, the simple act of movement, it's sort of what I said before, motion is lotion. It's not necessarily the recovery training process, but some people, well, a lot of people respond really well if they've been deconditioned to just simply getting up and moving again. And, you know, one of the, one of the, the things that I find really fascinating in the research that's out there is looking at um, injury healing or pre uh, prevention of injuries and looking at how, you know, do you need a structural tissue anatomical or physiological change to see a benefit in terms of injury prevention or pain responses and things like that? And the answer is no. This simple act of exercising, even if you don't improve strength or even if you don't improve your endurance or, or whatever, you can still modulate how you respond to certain certain things. So, so uh, pain responses can be reduced. Um, 
increasing uh, tolerance to pain can increase. Um, the psychological benefit that potentially is behind the ability to see that your body can be stressed and it be okay, you know, can, can help with that process as well. So, so as much as most of it from a physiological perspective, I do think is the chronic training response because of recovery and adaptation, we can't ignore the fact that just in general exercise is good for you. Yeah. And I'm just thinking like to synovial joints, right? Like joints that don't have like direct blood flow that, you know, requires the sort of the synovial fluid to move. And that fluid isn't going to move very well in and out of the joint when you're not moving. Right. right. And it's not going to stimulate more lubrication. Right. That's right. Without the movement. So you're right. I, I, I can see that makes sense that you would have an acute response just by simply moving waste product out of a joint to get more, like to get new nutrients and new, you know, circulation in that, that can potentially have some really good impacts. Yeah, that, that is the, that is a perfect example of motion is lotion and, and why we talk about that. Um, you know, cranky knees as you get older is such a calm and common, common thing. And, and uh, the number of people that I've seen um, that are in the older age category or that have these sort of chronically cranky knees, you know, you, you sort of say, well, what hurts the most? Well, it hurts when I do stairs and it hurts when I try and get up from sitting. Um, and so I can't squat. No, no, no. Don't, don't ask me to squat. I can't squat. It hurts too much. And so what do we give them? We give them squats. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, 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 I mean, it's not as simple as, oh, you need to go do your squats, right? You know, there's, there's a process and, yeah. and, but, but it starts with just moving and it starts with trying to move through the, I mean, the, the best thing for a knee is that loaded, um, you know, closed kinetic chain movement, like a sit to stand or a squat that, that puts the right stresses through the joint so that it does create that shift and, and flow of the synovial fluid that eventually, you know, you start, you start moving, you're able to move a little bit more and um, half of it is technique too. And so we look at the exercise technique, but just get them doing and they find most people find that unless there's something really sinister going on, that most people find that, oh, actually it feels a lot better after a couple of weeks of just doing, you know, some basic sit to stands. I think the challenge is, is getting them there because mm -hmm. it's going to have some level of discomfort. Right. And so sometimes there's this vision in the mind that like, if I'm feeling pain with the, you know, with the sit to stand simple exercise, like, oh, I shouldn't do it. And, you know, it hurts too much. Um, no, maybe it's because they can't envision that that movement will be better. And so they usually quit before they get there. That's true. And the, the, what they'll find is if they've done a really busy day where they've been doing a lot of bending, they find that they're very sore. And then the next day they're sore. And, and you know, these chronic or acute inflammatory sort of signs um, are ones that are telling them I didn't do something right. Right. And so then they become scared of that. And that's why they say, oh, no, I can't squat because I know the next day and the day after I'm going to be way more sore, which is going to make things worse. So it's a, it, it's a balance of, as 
you say, getting there and, and the education piece around that, that this can be successful and then to find ways that are successful. Because of course you don't, you know, I, I'm saying, yes, we give them squats, but it, again, it doesn't start with, okay, let's, you know, take a bunch of squats and load them up with some kettlebells or dumbbells or barbells or whatever. Like yeah. often it is maybe some light knee bends, you know, and, and just sort of focusing on the movement pattern, maybe supported with your hands, you know, on a chair in front of you or something like that to just try and get through the motion and, and uh, build up that motion as lotion, build up the, uh, the synovial fluid shifts and uh, allow them to gain some confidence in with that movement. And then we can put the muscle strength on and, and all of that later on. Yeah, I think, you know, if we, uh, well, I think it comes to the, you know, coach or practitioner, you know, really helping them understand that it's an adaptive process, right? And that, you know, we have to stress it a little bit, but not stress it so much. It's a kind of, I guess we go back to that hurt versus harm, mm-hmm. you know, where we let them know, like, here is the range that you can kind of like push in if it feels comfortable. Like, here's the range, stay out of this range, you know, until you, you know, We'll get to the, you know, we'll get to the kettlebell squats, but like that's over there, right? Yeah. Here are the, here are the steps, you know, graded exposure um, so that we can basically build that adaptation. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to just loop back quickly to that whole idea around like Arnold Schwarzenegger and like strength training um, as it relates kind of for women, because I think, you know, there could be a, you know, some women have a concern about, you know, am I going to get too bulky? Like what does strength X, what does strength training look like for the female population? Well, it's, I mean, there's lots of different, different options in terms of what people can do. So there's, I mean, there's as many, you know, what does it look like (laughs) as there is things out there. Right. So, so it's similar from men to women that way. When, when, when I look at strength training in, in women, to me, it's no different than strength training in men. It still involves heavy weights, uh, low repetitions for the most part. And what uh, the, the problem is, is that, people associate this heavy weight with building muscle. And now that is true. However, with, with most, with most people, even, even men, women, it's, it's less so because, because the, the um, female hormones are different than the male hormones in terms of, you know, the amount of testosterone that uh, is being produced in that it's, the, the process is the same, but women talk about toning and they say, well, you know, I just, I'd like to be toned. I just don't want to be big. I want to be toned. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it is the process of actually putting on a little bit of muscle that stretches the skin a little that actually creates that toning look. And it's not bulk because mm. it, like I said before, if you, if you're training to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, you're eating 7,000, 8,000 calorie a day diet. You're training six hours a day, seven days a week. You have, you're blessed with the genetics to be able to do that and continually put on, on mass. We're not doing that. We're not coming anywhere near that. Oh, not, not to mention the performance enhancement drugs that are typically as part of that world. We're not doing any of that, that stuff. You know, we're, we're doing a few sets of a few reps of progressive loading. Your body will respond in a very, very positive way. Um, And, and you don't get bulky. You might get what looks like tone. 
you know, mm. but uh, re- relaxed muscle still looks like, you know, a normal sort of person. And I think, you know, as much as I discourage um, my, my daughters as well to kind of look at social media and compare themselves to that, that's not, that's not at all what, uh, you know, the message that I want to give here. But you, but if you were to go, you know, look on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and look for people that are in the world of fitness and strength training, um, they're, they're not Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're, they're just people that, that have some muscle mass that, that have built some strength and they just look like normal people. You'd never, sometimes you'd never know, you know, you'd never know that they've been training um, by just seeing someone walk down the street. Right. It's, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's very complex, obviously, but it's not, it's not something that unless you're doing those massively over the top things that the bodybuilders uh, um, employ in their day, you're not going to get bulky. You're, you're going to get strong. You're going to feel great. You're going to be able to move well and uh, life activities become super easy. You know, when they were hard before, those are the benefits, not the bulk. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Mindfulness. Wow. We just jumped into that. I know. We're just, I just, (laughs) I'm I'm just going to, I'm just literally dropping the ball. And I'm going to say mindfulness. Like, where did that come from? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, (laughs) so for those that don't, that don't know, I mean, you know, we had the, the good fortune of talking before this uh, podcast about, about this. And so it's like, you know, you drop the mindfulness ball and then there's, you know, choirs going, (laughs) you know, and bright lights and flashing (laughs) lights and all that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I, I'm researching mindfulness now and mindfulness in combination with training and strength training. And, and there's some really interesting things as I'm going down this rabbit hole. But to, to answer your question, to get back to where it started, this, this, you know, most of the things I do start with personal experiences. And um, I, I honestly think that that's the best way to do my job is to, you know, find the things that are working for me personally, and then and then see how that translates to the larger world. And so I've, I've grown up, I had, um, back when I was in physio school, actually, I had a concussion. And um, whether it started from this, or was exacerbated by this concussion, I, I've had a significant amount of anxiety throughout my throughout my life. And, and uh, so generalized anxiety disorder with some social anxiety. And, and so, you know, all those memes that say, you know, I was an expert at social distancing prior to the pandemic, you know, like that was me, right. But I'd also get a significant amount of anxiety. And it took me a long time to figure out that that's actually what it was and that it wasn't that I was lazy or scared to do things or, you know, it it was, you know, a very significant uh, mental health issue that uh, I was able to learn how to manage. And what, what helped me was, was taking a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which is sort of the Western um, gold standard for, for stress reduction and mindfulness. And, and so I, I started delving into this because I, I loved it. And I just loved the changes that it made in terms of my own personal ability to deal with stress and deal with anxiety and to know, recognize what it is and what it was and what it's not. And to have some very, very specific strategies that I can use to improve my mental health, which have translated over to my abilities on the physical health side of things. And so, so that's where it all started. Um, But um, so doing these, these, 
training studies with older adults as well. We, we'd often hear, as I mentioned, all of these stories about how things were, you know, felt easier and how I was able to do more. And it started me thinking about resilience and the concept about, you know, being resilient to stresses and, and, you know, and which, which is exactly what the strength training process does is, is this resilience, but, but looking into the resilience research, there are a few things that are associated with resilience. And one of them is mindfulness. And one of the ones that, that, that people say that the most resilient individuals tend to be the ones that, that have a significant amount of mindfulness. And so for those that aren't really aware, I don't know how with your listeners, if they all know about mindfulness or not, but definition uh, is good. Yeah. Mindfulness is basically it's paying attention with intention and non-judgment. So it's, it's being aware of you and your surroundings in the present moment. Because we get so focused, and this is where, where a lot of the stress responses and the anxiety comes from. We focus either on all the bad things we did in the past, or the, at least the perceived bad things we did in the past, and all the bad things that are going to happen in the future or the, or the perception of, oh, I, I'm stressed about this, I'm worried about this, that we forget so much about that we actually are here and now. And the only thing that we can control is the here and now, what we do today and what we feel today. That's the only real thing that we have available to us. And so it's, it's paying attention to your body. It's paying attention to how your emotions and thoughts affect your physiological responses. It's paying attention to how your external stimuli affect your body and your thoughts and, and the, the cycle of how it's, there, there is no, there is no difference between a body and a mind there. It's all the same thing. And, and we, we're, we do so much mind body separation in Western medicine. And, and I know through physiotherapy school, it was always, this is physical, this is mental. And, you know, there was always, there, there wasn't that connection and we'd give lip service to the holistic person, not actually really dealing with it. And so, um, the mind mindfulness is awareness with intention. So you're purposely making awareness or, or causing awareness and you're doing it non-judgmentally. And that's one of the crucial aspects of it because the non-judgmental part of it relates to self-compassion and mm -hmm. self-compassion is one of the biggest aspects of mindfulness. So you don't judge that you have pain. You might have, you, you just, you know, if you have pain in your knee, mindfulness about pain in your knee is just saying, okay, well, how do I actually feel right now? Let's, you know, I might have some emotional response tied to pain. And that's often, uh, often the case with a lot of individuals that have chronic pain or even a new injury that they're, you know, there's so much emotion around, I, you know, it's someone else's fault, or I don't, I don't know how to deal with this, or, you know, this is causing me to not be able to do the things I want to do. And so we get so caught, we get so stuck in this cycle of ruminating and this cycle of putting emotion into the pain that you, you, you forget that the pain is, is, is a sensation that is interpreted by the body and the brain um, in terms of the overall stimuli. So what it allows you to do is sort of say, okay, well, what is actual the physical sensation and what's the emotional side of things, you know, as, as an example. And so it, uh, so, so from a, from a definition, dropping my, from a definition of, uh, of mindfulness, um, to me, it encompasses that awareness that the body and, and the mind are the same thing and that we have the ability to see that, but we just need to be trained 
to do that. Like I've always thought of myself as being very body aware and very aware of myself. And, you know, I've had great proprioception. I was a gymnast as, as a young, young kid and, you know, my body awareness. I always thought that that would never be an issue. But when I started taking this MBSR course and really getting into, into mindfulness, it was just shocking to me to see how much I missed by not paying attention. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think that, bringing yourself to how am I actually moving? Where do I perceive this movement to be occurring? You know, can I identify like areas of my body that are contracting? Uh, and again, the non-judgmental piece is like, you know, you don't want to be doing a squat and go, ugh, that was a terrible squat. Right. right. It was just like, oh, what, like, what, what is it? You know, did I, did I feel that I, um, you know, did a posterior pelvic tilt at the end, or, you know, did I not squeeze my glutes enough or, you know, just kind of getting into the perception of like what it is that you're doing throughout that movement, what you're feeling and yeah. kind of describing it as if you were watching somebody else doing it and you were trying to explain to another person, like what a squat is. Right. So it kind of like takes you away and puts you into the observer role. Yeah. Yeah. And you're observing yourself and you're, you're, you're in the key, as you, as you say, it's not that, Oh, it was a terrible squat. I mean, those, those are not the things that, that we want to be, to be thinking about, but we don't judge ourselves for thinking those things either. That's part of yeah. the, the mindfulness aspect is, is that non-judgment. And so, you know, you start off learning mindfulness for those that have done it through usually meditative type practices. And in those practices, it's, it's a matter of recognizing when your thoughts are going beyond that immediate, you know? And so you, most people have some sort of an anchor that they, that they anchor their thoughts to. And, and for me, it's more often than not my breath. Uh, for a lot of people, that's true. Some people anchor to the sensation of their bum in the chair or their feet on the ground or, or whatever. Um, there's lots of different ways you can anchor, but um, you anchor to something physiological within your own awareness and like the breath, for example. And then you, you know, you just think about your breathing and that's, that's the intention is, is just focus on the in and the out and all of the sensations that you, that you feel with that. Um, and, and then you can, you know, you can do all kinds of other things like body scans and, and a bunch of other type of meditation. But the idea is that when your thoughts go off into the periphery, that you recognize that's the moment of mindfulness and you bring it back to your anchor. And, and so, you know, in a 20 minute meditation, you might be, you know, drifting, I don't know, 300 times. Right. Yep. And then coming back right to, to your breath or whatever your anchor is that many times, but not being judgmental about that, you know, over time, your abilities get better, but you're never going to be 20 minutes of just focusing on your breath with no other thoughts. Even the, the Buddhist monks that have been doing it their entire life. Don't do that. They, you know, everybody has thoughts. That's the nature of the mind is to, is to do think. that. So yeah, is to think. So it's and about bringing it back. I think that's kind of one of like the misconceptions around mindfulness or I'll hear people say, Oh, I'm not good at that. You know, I'm always thinking. And it's like, nobody said you were supposed to think, right. The, right. the point is to recognize that you, right. Cause you're intentionally trying to pay attention to the fact that you are thinking about something and then intentionally bringing yourself back, as you said, to that, to that anchor. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, so we have kind of this structure and this definition now of mindfulness. 
And so where, where, where is the strength training piece? Like, how are you envisioning the incorporation? Uh, Is it more like in the mindfully moving or like during the stressor event, or is it in recovery? Like, where do you see this kind of being a part of exercise? Yeah, great, great question. It's, um, I don't think we have any concrete answers right now, just to put that out there. I mean, it's, I I have a few ideas and where my research is going is is pursuing these ideas. But um, one of the, you know, I I always laugh because I think of myself going through my rugby training and then my physio school and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, as much as I felt I was always aware, like I said, I, I found out I wasn't, but I always thought the mind body stuff as cool as it sounded it was all this woo woo you know like didn't doesn't like it's all it's all in your head and it means nothing it's all oh it's just for the psychologically weak that need to worry about that like these dumb thoughts that just were going through my head right that um you know, that, that have really changed. And so, you know, I was someone that was always very, uh, again, very physical when it came to my work as a physiotherapist, my research that I, that I've been doing and, you know, really focusing on, well, what does this type of training do for that adaptation and sort of forgetting about the fact that there is actually an underlying process, whether we really understand that underlying process or not, there's an underlying process around what you're actually doing when you're training, you know, and, and, and there is a, there's an awareness of your body position, right? There's an awareness of the, the sensation of the load that you feel. There's the awareness of the tiredness that you might feel because of either the exercise or a poor sleep, um, there's that awareness. And then there's also the, the, the stress that we all have throughout most of our lives. Right. You remember our, you know, for those that, uh, that understand sort of a little bit about the nervous systems, the autonomic nervous systems and the difference between the, the fight or flight responses, the sympathetic responses or the rest and digest responses, which is more the parasympathetic responses. It's sort of like, you know, if we're, we're evolutionarily designed to be able to run away from the bears and, you know, whatever else was chasing us back in the day and, you know, sprint, 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 get away from it or fight to fight it off, you know, and that's your survival. But then when you're done that, hopefully you can reap the rewards of not dying or, you know, finding your food or whatever. Right. And then, so you eat and you relax and then you can socialize with your clan. Well, in today's world, the bears are, you know, constant financial stresses, workday stresses, kids stresses, family stresses, you know, trying to find enough time to do the things that you want to do stresses and, and just stress about stress. And, you know, so we're in this constant, as we said before, this constant sympathetic state in this constant stress response state where we have all this stress that likely, I mean, we know that it impairs a whole whack of physiological things that happen related to chronic diseases, um, you know, hypertension, heart disease, metabolic disease, all have this relationship with this chronic stress and this chronic inflammation that comes along with it. But as I mentioned earlier, with the healthy individuals, we're still having that stress response, which I think is impairing our whole, I I don't like saying mind body as a thing, but it's sort of ourselves, you know, impairing our ability to 
respond and react and adapt the way we want to because we're never coming out of this sympathetic state or it's very uh, infrequently that we're coming out of that sympathetic state to really truly become a parasympathetic and and be relaxed so where I think, and, and I've played around this with myself and, and um, looked at uh, um, the bits of research that, is, that are out there and, and started to conduct a couple trials, actually, looking at this sort of thing. I, I, think that, I think it is twofold, in my opinion, just at this point in time, if I were to generate a hypothesis, it's, it's partly mindful movement, which we know there's a very, very big um, body of research in yoga as a primary example of how mindful movement can impact the whole self. And I don't see strength training as fundamentally any different than the mindful movement that you do for yoga. It's, I'm going to say it's harder. Uh, I've done a lot of yoga in the past, not, not so much recently, but I've done a lot in the past and I've done a lot of strength training. But it's only been relatively recently since I went on this journey where I really tried to be mindful during strength training. And the very first time I did it, I didn't modify anything on my strength training. I just focused my, my mind on what I was doing. And it floored me. It, it was hard. It was, it was because with yoga, the movements are fluid. Not to say that it's not difficult sometimes, but, you know, it's gentle contractions, not really hard contractions. And so it just like, like all of a sudden um, I had my attention, you know, I was in a very, very mindful state. And then I, I, I had that load on. I was actually doing a squat when I did it. I had a load on. It was a good thing. It was my warm up set. And, and basically just everything went out the window, right? My technique went out the window because it was just, it just, it was almost like a bomb hit me, right? Because it, it took me from that awareness out to like, whoa, there's an external stimulus here, right? And so it was, it was hard to learn. Um, but I do think that since I've been able to do this, I, I'm becoming much, much more mindful with the way that I'm moving while I'm, while I'm training, and particularly at the lower loads and eventually at the higher loads, really focusing on the mind-muscle connection and, and focusing on my technique. And I actually find that my technique is more consistent. I have a better feeling about things, anything that sort of nigs in terms of pain. I have a better idea of where it's coming from and what to do and what not to do. So I think there's a mindful movement aspect as part of it. But then I also think, as we referred to earlier, there's a recovery aspect here about mindfulness. We, nobody's ever shown this, but mindfulness in combination with training or in, in combination with performance, um, there's just a couple little studies that have shown that doing a mindfulness intervention can enhance performance. One looked at sleep quality and they found that being mindful helped you sleep better and they attributed uh, the gains in performance that they got to this better quality sleep. Um, and then there's, there's another one in, in, uh, um, in a different population um, that looked at a different type of measure. I can't remember ex the exact details of that one, but the, what we do know is that mindfulness does reduce a lot of the physiological stress factors. So we know that, uh, um, and, th and then there's a lot of clinical uh, changes that happen with being mindful that are very well documented that all relate to your ability to recover from whatever stress, whether it be a physiological, psychological type stressor, that our ability to tolerate those stresses goes up. And so because of your inflammation and stress responses going down in the recovery time. So you get to rest and digest and eat the, you know, the wolf that you just chased down and stabbed. Right. And 
So I think that, I think that there's an aspect there that would relate to strength training. It just hasn't been shown yet. So that's, that's kind of where my research is going is, is to look at these aspects and to, when you add a mindfulness type uh, practice onto strength training, can we enhance the, the gains that we get, or is it better quality training or, you know, does it do something maybe that we're not expecting? It's, it's a very, very cool area that I'm really excited to delve into because I, I know the benefits are there. Um, just whether we show them with research and why and the mechanisms behind it that we don't know, it's, it's all super cool. Yeah. It's, it sounds really interesting to be able to like ask these questions and then start to dive into to seeing like what you know what happens um i think you know certainly you're right about its impacts on the autonomic nervous system if we can decrease that stress response we know that our immune system responds better right so i would i would hypothesize that you would see improvements in the adaptability of that recovery phase. Now, I just certainly, I have no clue how you would measure this. Like whether you're, you, you know, whether you're measuring blood samples to see like what, what's showing up in, you know, in the blood work in terms of like stress markers. Um, that's the only thing that's coming to my mind uh, currently, um, you know, and self-report measures of perceived you know, recovery or perceptions around pain, perceptions of, 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 of training. Um, I'm not sure how you can measure it anyways, but it's, it's, a, it's a great, it is a good question. Um, I, there, there's are some non-invasive physiological measures that we can do. And the most common one right now is heart rate variability. And so I, I think it's going to involve a combination of those things, including look at looking at heart rate variability, which is a really cool measure. You just need to be able to measure ECG or, or you can even do it, uh, estimate it through uh, just like a polar heart rate monitor, if you can get the raw data from it. And the more variability you have, the better your autonomic system is responding. And so those that, that, that are uh, very high stress, highly sympathetic dominated, their heart rate is fairly consistent. And, but normally what we expect is that there's a change in heart rate with your breath. And so as you breathe in, you expect your heart rate to decrease. As you breathe out, you expect it to increase. And the degree of shift from that is sort of about the health of the autonomic nervous system and sort of whether you're able to kind of be in a parasympathetic state or a, or a sympathetic state. So, so stress hormones through either blood or saliva um, and, and self-report measures, um, looking at training responses over time. You know, does, does one group who's doing a mindful practice and the other one that isn't, you know, is, are there changes in their adaptation, you know? So it, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out as actually being significant and what doesn't. And yeah. 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 I, uh, and, you know, in speaking to like mechanisms, you know um, I think certainly being able to first and foremost show that there's some positive uh, change will certainly garner more uh, research interest and, you know, the explaining part will come probably later, right? As we yeah. try to figure out exactly how how this all, you know, how this works. I'm, I'm sure, that, you know, well, gravity, right? Like, that's one of those, like, we kind of, you know, well, most people, I, I, the really smart people understand it. I'm just like, gravity's <laughs> here. I, I yeah. see that it works. <laughs> that's right. I don't really know how it works specifically, but it works. So and I feel you know like- what? Yeah, this, this is absolutely true because, 
you know, you look at basically any research out there, especially in, in the, the rehab world that is, uh, you know, says, well, if I do this intervention, I see this happen. And, you know, we, we tend to think, oh, there's this very specific mechanical path or mechanistic path that you follow from, from the intervention to the result. And, and it doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. And even if you think you have a handle on it, you're probably wrong to a certain extent or a big extent, right? So yeah. it, it's a matter of trying to find out ways to be less wrong. Yeah. Um, but in the end, if there's a clinical result, then that's important. Yeah. Whether we understand, you know, the, the basics behind it or not. As long, and that there's no adverse reactions that we didn't yes. anticipate. So as long as there's no adverse adverse reactions and we can see positive benefits and it's easy, efficient to to use, then it you know certainly becomes more wide mainstream. You know, you get better uptake. Totally. This has been really fun and interesting. Like I know I've learned a lot, and I hope. Our listeners have learned a lot and are hopefully thinking like, it's not too late for me to exercise and like get things done. Um, I wanted to ask like, you know, where can people like, you're obviously doing this, you know, you're kind of getting into this research realm, but where can people like find you, follow you kind of figure out what you're up to with respect to this research? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I'm, I'm fairly, in, I, I'm as consistent as I can be with having, you know, like a real job. <laughs> yeah. Not that any other people aren't, but, um, you know, with social media, I do as much as I can. So Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook, you can find me at the strength Jedi. So that, um, that would be the, at the strength Jedi, um, or, uh, on Facebook, Dr. Dot, or sorry, Dr. Dot Scotty butcher, um, or my website, www.thestrengthjedi.com. Awesome. Thank you. And of course we'll put those links in the show notes. So it makes it super easy for people just to like click and, uh, easily find you. Um, thank you again for like taking time out of your schedule to like, get into this research topic with me. And I just, I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for the invite. And this is, uh, I love having these talks and uh, this certainly is uh, one of the better ones that I've had for sure. It's, uh, it's been great. You've, you've got some awesome questions. So it's really nice to engage with your listeners and, and with you. Thank you so much. And of course, we always want to thank our listeners for following us uh, on the podcast. You know, every week is a different aspect of living a better life. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out. And we'll catch up with you on the next uh, podcast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.